evidence and answers. Is there scientific credibility to the biblical story of the flood? When did the flood occur? Is it reasonable to think Noah had the ability to build an ark the size of a cruise ship? How many animals really were on board? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, Pat and scientist Dr. Hugh Ross will discuss the credibility of the Genesis flood. Now with part one of this fascinating interview is our host, Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, today we're talking about Noah and the Flood, an event recorded in the Bible that many skeptics and even academic scholars consider to be mythological. So today we're focusing not only on the biblical account, but also on the scientific perspective on the flood. And to help us out with this issue, of course, uh, when we have issues of science, we turn to our science team. They're at Reasons to Believe. And with us is the president and founder of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hugh Ross. Uh, he's founder of the organization that reaches and communicates how discoveries about nature harmonize with the words of the Bible. He's a prolific scientist with a Ph.D. in astrophysics. He's the author of numerous books, including Weathering Climate Change, Creator and the Cosmos, The Improbable Planet, and others. And we've often had Dr. Ross and Dr. Rana and Jeff Zwernick and other of his top scientists on our show. So, Dr. Ross, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Well, thank you for having me back. My pleasure. Yes, Dr. Ross, you're a scientist, but also a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. And so tell us, what is your background as a scientist, and how is it that you, as a scientist, you came to take the Bible seriously? Well, I was born, raised, and educated in Canada, and really didn't get to know a serious Christian well until I showed up at Caltech to do postdoctoral research. Uh, but I got into astronomy when I was at a very tender age of seven. I became fascinated by the subject. I was reading four or five books a week on physics and astronomy. And by the time I was 16, I realized the universe has a beginning. If the universe has a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. And so at age 17, I went on a quest to find that cosmic beginner, first looking for in the writings of the great philosophers, particularly Immanuel Kant and René Descartes. And I recognized I wasn't making much headway there and began to go through the world's holy books. And uh, as after a two-year study, going through the Quran, the Hindu Vedas, the Buddhist commentaries, a number of other books, and I finally did pick up a Bible. And I spent 18 months studying the Bible for an hour plus a day and eventually came to the conclusion, this is a book that could not have been inspired by mere human beings because it predicts future scientific discoveries and it predicts future historical events and does so with 100% accuracy. So at the age of 19, that I signed my name on the back of a Gideon Bible, uh, giving my life to Jesus Christ. I went on to get a Ph.D. in astronomy. I uh, ended up at Caltech, active in sharing my faith, and particularly showing people all the places in the Bible where it accurately stated science and accurately made uh, predictions of future scientific discoveries. And I've had the pleasure of leading a number of scientists of faith in Christ 
uh, through that approach. Yes, and I highly recommend your site all the time to those with a science background is reasons to believe dot org, a tremendous web page for those interested in seeing how science and the Bible come together. Now, Dr. Ross, you spent a lot of time in the academic arenas. I've got my doctorate in apologetics, but also in Near Eastern archaeology. And so one of the things you and I know is that many, or if not most, of the scholars in this arena view Genesis chapters 1 through 10 as mythical. How do you view Genesis 1 through 10? Is it mythical? Is it literal? How do you view Genesis 1 through 10? Well, having read through the entire Bible several times, I look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis and note that it's beyond any other text in the Bible in communicating that this is an actual chronology of real historical events. I mean, as I look at Genesis 1 through 11, the author there is going to great pains to repeatedly tell the reader this is an account of historical events. I mean... The fact that you see the days numbered in Genesis 1, the repetition, and God said, and it was good, and it was so. I mean, it's basically, when you look at it in the original Hebrew, every possible tool is being employed to communicate to the reader, this is a chronology of actual events. And therefore, from my perspective, this can't be considered as mythology. But I think what's driving the modern movement to look at these early chapters of Genesis as mythical or legendary as opposed to an actual historical account as they find it to be quite difficult to reconcile an historical interpretation of these early chapters of Genesis with what we know to be true from history and science. But that wasn't my issue. When I began to look at those early chapters of Genesis for the first time in my late teenage years, I just saw a perfect fit with the scientific record. But I think that's because the approach I took to interpreting not just Genesis, but all the books of the Bible, is to use the biblical interpretive method, what my colleagues in science call a scientific method. I was taught the scientific method every year I went to public school, but it wasn't until I became a Christian and began to study the Bible that I realized the origin of the scientific method are the pages of Scripture. In fact, I was blown away the first time I looked at Genesis 1 and was amazed how perfectly it followed the scientific method. But that's where the scientific method came from. So, of course, it follows that method. Yes, and expound on that just a little bit before we get into our topic. For those who may not be familiar, what what do you mean by the scientific method and how it applies to biblical interpretation? I think that's really important. It is, and the Bible repeatedly commands the reader put everything to the test, hold fast to that which proves to be good. But the Bible not only exhorts objective testing, it tells us step by step how to put everything to the test. And so step one of what we now call the scientific method is do not interpret until you establish the frame of reference or the point of view. And so if you look at Genesis chapter one, before you get into the six days of creation, It tells us that the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters of planet Earth. So it tells the reader where to interpret the account of the six days from the perspective of an observer on the surface of Earth. And step two of the biblical testing method, a.k.a. the scientific method, is do not interpret 
until you first establish the starting conditions or the initial conditions. And we also see that in Genesis 1-2, that the earth begins, according to that text, as a place where it's dark on the surface of the waters. Everywhere it's dark on the surface of the earth. Waters cover the whole surface of the earth. And the earth at that time is unfit for life and empty of life. And so now that you've got the initial conditions and the frame of reference or the point of view, we're in a position to look at the six days of creation and determine the order and the description of the creation events. And from that perspective, you notice that there's a perfect fit uh, with the scientific record. However, if you put the point of view above the clouds rather than below the clouds, then everything in Genesis 1 is wrong. And that's why I think people have said, we have to interpret this as mythology, because if we interpret it as a straight literal history, then we've got a problem with the scientific record. But it's not a problem with the scientific record if you have the correct frame of reference. Yes, and one of the stories, or I hate to call it story, one of the events that is recorded in the book of Genesis that many consider mythology is the story of Noah and the flood. And so that's one of the things we're going to be looking at today. Now, Dr. Ross, according to what you've told us, when did Noah live? What's the time period here? Well, we know from the text that uh, the floodwaters rose for 40 days and then subsided for about a year. And for the water to take that long to subside, uh, Noah would have to be living during the last ice age. I mean, the water would be flowing out into the ocean and uh, that water would need to be replaced in order for it to take that long for the flood to subside, which means the flood needed to occur at a time when there was an enormous amount of snow and ice melting. Therefore, I've always considered Noah to be someone who lived during the last ice age, somewhere between, say, uh, 14,000 and 130,000 years ago, Although I think we can come up with a little more accurate time frame because it tells us in Genesis 10 and 11 that God took humans from one region of the world and scattered them over all the land masses of the earth. And uh, we got uh, both carbon-14 dating and genetic evidence that tells us that the aggressive migration of humanity from one locale into all the world's land masses that happened uh, somewhere between 40 and 50,000 years ago. So Noah would be living sometime previous to that. So somewhere between 50,000 and 130,000 years. Although I wouldn't go as far as 130,000 because Genesis 2 also tells us that God created Adam and Eve sometime during the last ice age. And clearly Noah lived sometime after God created Adam and Eve. So somewhere closer the 40 or 50,000 as opposed to the 100 to 130,000. Yeah, so you would say Adam and Eve, being literal people, were created sometime during the Ice Age? Well, the reason I take that point of view, Genesis 2 describes four known rivers, the Tigris, the Euphrates, which still flow today, and the Gihon and the Pishon, which were flowing during the last Ice Age. It tells us where they were flowing from, but also states that they come together in the Garden of Eden. And the only location where they could come together is in the southeastern portion 
of the Persian Gulf. Today, it's 200 feet below sea level, but during the last ice age, it would have been above sea level. And so, based on that biblical description, I believe that God created Adam and Eve sometime during the last ice age, and Noah, of course, would be living uh, sometime after Adam and Eve. Yes, now, Dr. Ross, I can hear some young earth creationists, our friends in the young earth camp, getting uncomfortable with those dates there. Some hold to what is called Usher's calendar, and they calculate that if you look at the ages, the uh, genealogy goes from Adam to Noah, you should get about a 6,000-year universe. And so, therefore, the flood should have occurred about 2,348 B.C., and so, therefore, Noah should have, you know, been alive, and the flood occurred right 3rd century B.C. How do you answer that? Well, I tell my young earth friends that, you know, every doctoral-level young earth theologian who's fluent in Hebrew uh, recognizes that there has to be gaps in the genealogies you see in Genesis 5 and 11. Typically, they would hold the position that there's not a whole lot of gaps, but again, my friends who have that educational background that do take a young earth perspective, they typically put the creation of Adam and Eve about 10,000 years ago, again, recognizing that there has to be at least a few gaps. However, you look at the larger theological community, there's quite a vigorous debate on how many gaps there are in Genesis 5 and 11. And, you know, they go to places like Chronicles, where you have a long genealogy, and you've got a genealogy in both Matthew and Luke. And there's a name in Luke, for example, that doesn't show up in Genesis 5. So that right away tells you how there has to be uh, missing names. And also let people know that every genealogy in the Bible makes a theological point on determining which names are selected and which names are left out. And so, you know, there's one genealogy, for example, that makes a point of mentioning women in the genealogy as opposed to men and women uh, who had committed uh, what we would consider to be, uh, you know, rather uh, significant sins. Basically making the point, the gospel is not just for men, it's for women. The gospel is not just for the righteous, it's also for the unrighteous. God is able to save all. And so... Uh, if we look at the genealogies in that context, uh, I think it really does help uh, communicate a more significant message. But it also means that we can't use the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 to give an accurate date for when God created Adam and Eve or an accurate date for the flood of Noah, but you can get a rough date. And so I think if you're willing to tolerate error bars of a few thousand years, then the genealogies are helpful. Yes, being a student of Near Eastern archaeology, when we're looking at the Sumerian kings list and the Akkadian kings list and others, yeah, we understand how numbers and dates are used and what you're talking about. I mean, I think Hammurabi lived to about 30,000 years old, which we know, according to the study, he didn't live that long. So the way they use numbers, of course, varies, is what you're saying. Well, it does, and yeah. it's well known that in the ancient Near Eastern literature, that authors would exaggerate in order to make a political point. But I look at that uh, as an exaggeration that sustains the fact that when the Bible talks about people before the flood living to be 100 and 900 years, we should take that literally. Yeah, it's not the 10,000 to 30,000 that you see 
and some of the ancient Near Eastern legends, but it does indicate that people living before the flood were able to live a lot longer than we can live today. And as an astronomer, I can share that we now know that there is a different radiation environment for people living before the flood than people living today. And so today it's impossible for a human being to live that long from the days before the flood with a radiation environment, uh, much less of a problem. People actually could live that long. Although, based on the biblical text, I would argue that today we probably have an average lifespan that is actually longer than the average lifespan in the days of, say, Methuselah, because it was rare for anybody to live their life and have a natural death. The vast majority of people had their lives terminated by being murdered by their fellow man. Yes, now tell us about the condition of the earth. I mean, uh, you talk about a little bit, how different was it from the conditions that we have today? Well, the laws of physics were the same. Uh, Jeremiah 33 states that there's not been any change in the laws of physics. However, uh, we do see changes taking place, for example, in the stars. I mean, we now know that there was a big supernova eruption somewhere during the last 100,000 years that's responsible for 95% of the killer cosmic rays. So people living before that supernova eruption would have been exposed to a lot less radiation than people today, and hence would have the capability of living a lot longer. And as biblical evidence that people could indeed live longer, notice the biblical command to avoid meat until after the flood. You know, eating meat today is not going to be a problem because you're not going to live long enough for it to make a difference. But if you have the potential to live 900 years, you need to avoid eating meat because meat concentrates heavy metals in your body at a rate of about 10,000 times greater than if you're on a meatless diet. Yeah, so if Noah was around back when we're talking about these dates, you know, how does that fit in with the cavemen or Neanderthal man and, and these hominids? Well, I believe that God created about a dozen distinct species of bipedal primates that preceded human beings. I think the reason he did that was to train the large bird and mammal species. When you see a tall, big creature on two legs with weapons in its hands, run. And what we notice is those parts of the world that had Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Heidelbergensis, Australopithecines, those are the parts of the world where large-bodied bird and mammal species survived. North America, South America, and Australia, we have no evidence that bipedal primates have preceded human beings. And in those parts of the world, when humans eventually arrived there, they quickly wiped out the very bird mammal species they needed to launch and sustain civilization. And I think one reason why I think we have to credit a creator God, we now have field experiments that tell us land mammals with an adult body size bigger than seven pounds will go extinct before they can evolve into a different species. So just like I believe that God specially created Adam and Eve, I also believe that God specially created the bipedal primates that preceded us. But I doubt that Noah had contact with any of these creatures because uh, he would have been living in a part of the world where these creatures were already extinct or were not present. There is some evidence that when God scattered humanity 
from the Persian Gulf region into all the continental masses, land masses of the world, some humans may have had contact with the last of the Neanderthals and the last of the Denisovans, but it was a very limited contact. Yes, now, one thing that people have difficulty with is the technology to build the ark. If you look at the dimensions in the Bible, it's about the size of a small aircraft carrier or cruise ship. Now, where would a guy like Noah get that kind of technological understanding to build something like that? Well, the biblical text tells us he was building it for a 100 years. And he had his sons working with him. He was a prince, so he probably was able to hire a lot of labor. So given that he had that much time, and the text also says the ark was made out of gopher wood. We don't know what gopher wood is, but given the dimensions of the ark, it would have had to have been a wood with a higher tensile strength than oak. And so uh, given that, I think one reason it took 100 years is he had to gather enough gopher wood in order to make this ark. But I see nothing that's beyond the technology of uh, Noah and his sons and the laborers they would have hired that would have uh, forbidden them from building an ark of that size, uh, given the tensile strength of gopher wood. Yes, and we know that there are times civilization advanced in technology and engineering, and then uh, after some event like a great war or drought or something, the civilization actually went backwards. For example, the pyramids of Egypt. I mean, incredible, remarkable technological event here, accomplishment. Well, here you're by making the a really good point. Yeah. Is that uh, you know you read the history books? They talk about the Copper Age, the Tin Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. What we now know is that there were many Bronze Ages and many Iron Ages, because in the Old Testament era you would get these nomad tribes coming in and wiping out a whole people group and basically wiping out their technology. And so they'd have to start over. And so there were repeated incidences. And I think one of the evidences we have for that is we now have uh, archaeological evidence that humans were planting grains, roasting the grains, grinding the grains, and turning them into bakery products. And we've got three well carbon-14 dated epochs that establish that humans were engaged in bread making 13,000 years ago, 23,000 years ago, and 35,000 years ago. And what we're noticing, however, was all on a small scale. We would anticipate that because during the Ice Age, you have extreme climate instability, and therefore it wasn't possible to scale up civilization and technology until we came out of the Ice Age. And therefore, what we're finding are evidences for small-scale agriculture. And I'm predicting, I've already said so in my book, Navigating Genesis, it's only a matter of time before we find, during the last Ice Age, 12,000 years ago to 40,000 years ago, evidence of metallurgy. I mean, we have lots of evidence of it during the uh, interglacial, but given that it was all on a small scale, it's going to be difficult to establish that. But we already know, for example, that the Inui were cold-forging stainless steel meteorites into tools 11,000 years ago. So uh, when the Bible speaks about early humans being engaged in metallurgy, I think we need to take that seriously. Yes. Now, something with the dimensions of the ark. Now, according to you, 
how many animals do you think were on board the ark and is the ark big enough to fit that number of animals that were on board or supposedly on board well what you notice in the genesis text god said to noah this category of animals takes seven pair so for some 14 others he said one pair is enough and also the text talks about noah taking on board the basar that's a Hebrew word that refers to the soulish animals that are in a bonded relationship with human beings. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, Give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran.